0: at this time we're presenting i don't know what i'm going to call it yet if we should call it the uh, club the dj to death or if we should just call it night clubbing but anyway what we're doing is i go around and ask the jocks who's been in the clubs around town uh give me your uh, new favorite song or the one that's getting them up on the dance floor basically they've got you know control over this they can choose anything if they want to play a pink floyd cut they can play a pink floyd cut if they want to play a a song by the uh, the letterman, they can play a letterman cut. And uh, this week we've got Diana, who spends at uh, St. Andrews and occasionally Asylum. Also Mike Ziff, who does Liedernacht and also is a jock on the University of Windsor station, C.J.A.M. Not C.J. whatever the other one is. Uh, St. Andy from uh, Asylum and various other places, depending on when he decides to get out of bed. And, of course, Charles English from Todd's, the uh, inevitable Charles, who so everybody calls up all the time and goes, Charles, what's the deal, Charles.
1: And salutations, and welcome to Radio Days, a podcast radio program that delves into the world of terrestrial radio, its DJs,
0: and on air personality, and you, all fans of radio as a medium. Here's your host, Ron. Hello, and welcome to Radio Days, a podcast program that takes a look inside radio through the eyes of those who have worked behind the mic of radio. Today's show is produced by Ron Robinson Studios. If you need professional marketing videos or professional photography headshots, maybe you need drone video or photography, head over to RonRobinsonStudios.com. Also, before we uh, introduce our special guest today, I want to let you know about uh, the documentary about the history of terrestrial radio. Radio Days, the documentary, is coming in 2021, later this year. We're already here in 2021. Thank God 2020 is over. My guest today is one of the on-air personalities that will appear in this documentary. And if you're a fan of alternative music in Detroit or Southern California or anywhere in between, you will no doubt know my next guest. He's been a programmer, an on-air talent, an influencer, uh, and pretty much a radio jack of all trades. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Spex Howard School of Media Arts Hall of Famer, Mr. Mike Halloran. Mike, how are you, sir?
1: I I'm phenomenal. Two two things. First of all, it wasn't called Specs Howard Media Arts thing when I was there. It was just Specs Howard School of Broadcast Arts. Right. Uh, I don't know when they changed the name. Two, are we behind the mic or are we in front of the mic? Because I'm facing it, so I'm in front of it right now. You said you got it, these are the people who are behind the mic. So isn't that the engineer? Isn't that the guy that sits on the other side of the studio? And
0: am I am I? That's I, a great point. I just never thought well, of I'm it. Just, I just, I'm yeah. just wondering
1: because I just for a second there I thought you were talking about you're going to interview the engineer who's on this show. <laughs>
0: Mike, there's a a lot of things I want to talk to you about today, Mike, but let's start at the beginning. What made you want to pursue a career in radio to begin with? Let's take you back to the – why did you want to get into radio?
1: The the, the ironic thing is is that I didn't think about doing radio as much as I thought about uh, my frustration with – when when I was 11 years old, I'll back you up to when I was 11. When I was 11, my – my dear departed mother um, let me go to school in England. She did not send me away to school in England. She and my father decided that it would be better for me to get an education uh, that was of, of a higher quality because in fifth grade, all I was learning in science was how to blow up a balloon and let it go across the room. In England, at 11 years old, you are doing science experiments with animals, uh, dissecting animals. I shouldn't say you know, killing them, but you're dissecting animals. You're understanding physics, chemistry, biology as three separate subjects when you're 11. They really put you through the ringer uh, in England because, as they describe it, when you're that young, you're a sponge and you can take more. So I, I went to school in England from 1970 to 76. And while I was at school in England, the BBC has a completely different concept of how to do top 40. They don't do Top 40 as a format. They do Top 40 as a matter of fact. So if a song from Paul McCartney is number one and the Sex Pistols are number two, on the Top 40 radio station, you're going to get both of them within a half hour. So you're understanding that Paul McCartney is one of the Beatles. He's got a huge hit out there, some weird track called the Mull of Kintyre or something. And it's huge, and it's going to get played within 15 minutes of the Sex Pistols. In this country, they don't do that. They have rock formats. They have, uh, back in the day, they just had kind of like, not even really R&B. They just kind of, you know, had, uh, you know, somewhat jazzy Stanley Turrentine type stuff. But you didn't really have a -a 24-hour-a-day mojo radio station. You didn't have a -a uh, 24-hour-a-day, you know, radio station that played alternative music either. Uh, In England, it was all mixed up. So I was turned on to and I was very hip to, you know, everything from Deep Purple to Pink Floyd to everything because everything got played uh, on the BBC. So I'd come home in the summertime and the uh, the eternal story has always been that I would call John O'Leary and bug the hell out of him because he was not playing this band called Genesis. And at the time, Peter Gabriel was the singer. And Peter Gabriel had not yet left the band. And I was kind of calling up John all the time and basically saying, why aren't you playing this? They're huge. They're, you know, selling out, you know, massive arenas and blah, 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 blah. And John was basically, you know, this is America. This is not how we do things. And I just, I basically took it as like, you know, all right. And then like the next summer I'd come back and I'd ask him the same questions about other bands and, you know, whether it was King Crimson, and and the whole time, he was, and this is the thing I love about John, he he never bullshitted me, he never said, okay, kid, you know, he was just like, dude, why, why don't you get your own radio show, and at that time, I didn't, you know, I didn't think anything other than all right, I'm going to go get my own radio show because I wanted to play, I wanted to hear bands that I was listening to when I was living overseas. And they
0: weren't playing it on the radio. <clears throat> they weren't playing they it were on the radio. They were playing none of it. So in, the, in the,
1: late seven, or sorry, the mid to late 70s, as I was leaving England, bands like The Undertones, Pistols, Clash, all these bands started popping up on the scene in England, and I was hip to them because my sister was working for a couple of different record labels, and uh, she would turn me on to stuff. She would send me records over. I used to call Mark McEwen when Mark McEwen was working at W4 and say hey man I just got the new orchestra maneuvers in the dark record uh you want me to bring it down so you can play it he's like hey man I don't do that stuff and I'm thinking okay I mean we're friends now but it was kind of like you know nobody wanted to uh nobody wanted to have a 17 18 year old kid calling them up from right. the suburbs of Detroit yelling at them to, to play magazine or or, or uh, Ultravox or
0: right who, who you know, are any you who are you are we know amount. you know because they, they they probably fancied themselves. I mean, they, they knew, they thought they knew a lot about music too, but they obviously weren't exposed to some of the music you were exposed to.
1: Uh, yeah. T- yes. Correct. Uh, and, but the other thing was, is that they only got what they got from the U S record labels. And uh, the, the greatest example I could give you at one point, I've been doing radios in motion for a while and Carl coffee, who was doing uh, the riff rock cafe, which is that nighttime super late two o'clock in the morning show He was hosting some Sunday night show about, you know, new it was a talk show, not so much the Riff Rock Cafe, but it was a, you know, I'm I'm just trying to remember, maybe it wasn't Carl, maybe it was somebody like Costan or somebody else. But I went in to the Riff Studios, which is the first time I'd ever been in there, the last time, technically. And uh, they said, bring some songs that you think should be hits, you know, big hits in this country. So I brought this unknown band from L.A. They just released a single. In, uh, in England called We Got the Beat. It was on Stiff Records. They'd been signed because the specials, uh, the English ska band loved them and took them out on the road with them. And um, I brought the single in. It's a very, you know, rare pressing now. I mean, eventually the song went on to be number one, you know, but the, the amount of people who were listening to Riff at that time that called up and just said the song completely sucked was amazing. But We Got the Beat, playing the original version of it, which you can find on, on YouTube now, basically got the reaction that I thought it would get that these people were like, no, it doesn't sound like Jethro Tull. Fuck you, Halloran. Go away. (laughs) Leave, leave this, uh, leave this rock and roll radio shit to, to, you know, people who know what the fuck they're doing. And lo and behold, um, 82, 83. So this was probably about three years later. Uh, there was no top 40 station in Detroit. There was not really a station that was playing the top 40 hits. Uh, Hyt, I I don't think, had been invented yet. So what ended up happening was the song went to number one in the country, in the singles chart, but there was no top 40 station to play in Detroit, so none of the rock stations played it, none of the urban stations played it. Obviously, none of the jazz stations, the classical stations, country stations, they didn't touch it. So that song went to number one in the country after I was, you know, had been, you know, summarily dismissed by all the listeners of Riff, basically saying, fuck this, you know, alternative, it wasn't even called alternative, then, fuck this new wave shit um nobody cares and it, lo and behold the song that i did bring in went to number one there was other bands i brought in i couldn't say who they were at this point probably bands like you know the yachts or magazine or you know whatever it was but i brought in all neat and tidy stuff so that it would actually to me i thought it would translate but
0: i want to backtrack a little bit because early early on yeah and in, in the in the answer you talked about your phone call with uh, with john o'leary that's infamous now but um he basically told you to, to go to school for it so you my next question is: So, did you you went to Specs? Obviously, why didn't you choose a university with a, a communication program? Why, why did you go to Specs?
1: It's a pretty simple thing. For first of all, it wasn't a phone call, with John. It was phone calls over the course of many summers. Because you know, I, I started going to school there in 1970. So by the time he was picking up the phone, I don't remember what year he started. Seventy four, seventy five. That sounds about right. So when he got on, I was ABX first. Um, you know, and he was very gracious, and so were the other jocks that worked there, Sauté and stuff. So, like, when the Runaways came to Detroit, I knew where the station was because I'd been by there before, so I snuck over to the station to meet the Runaways. And so there's, you know, things that happened over the years. But John basically, because I said, look, if you think I can do this, you know, I knew he'd gone to Specs, as he told me. And it was a choice of, do I want to go to a four-year university, which I was kind of avoiding because it was my first year back in '70 you know, the end of 70 or middle of 76 into 77 and between like July of 76 and January of 77, my conversations with John was basically, it's up to you, but if you go to specs, you'll be done in nine months. And my thing was I already knew what I wanted to do. I knew the kind of music I wanted to play. I just did not want to wait four years to take a huge, massive class in broadcasting and media and all that stuff. When I knew I just wanted to get on to a local station and and play uh, XTC or the police or
0: so you just needed whatever. specs to teach you how to run a board basically. Uh,
1: th- it's exactly it and 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 uh, you know our old buddy Dick Kernan who who passed away recently. Um, that was the main thing that the reason that he and I got along was I I would question everything about the formatics of why people do certain things because I kept thinking this is fucking Detroit. I mean Detroit is the place where punk came from, it's the place where the weird ass uh. Um, you know, Delta Blues that came up, the stuff that didn't go to Chicago, you know, the old country thing about reading, and writing and Route 23. People came for jobs at the factory. So you had blues guys, you had jazz guys, you had country guys, you had, you know, I mean, the old nickname for Hazel Park was Hazel Tucky and, and like all all of this stuff was all about the amalgamation of the greatest stuff on the planet. And Detroit was really pretty much the melting pot of all of it in more ways than one because of the guys that came work, work at the factories compared to Chicago which, by the way, you know, obviously invented house music, but it took Detroit guys to put the edge into it, you know, to put the industrial side into it. And that's, you know, that's one of these. Detroit's invented more, I mean, just Motown alone. I mean, for fuck's sake, if we just stopped at Motown and said, all right, we're done, still to this day, probably the most popular music on the planet.
0: You know, it's interesting story. that you bring up Motown because uh, recently I went to interview Art Volo for my movie, and um, he reminded me. And it's something that you really don't think about, but there is no Motown station playing Motown format on the radio right now. Is that not a crime? Uh, Yes, it's a crime, but part of the problem
1: is you can probably go to, like, one of the subscriber-based things, the Siriuses of the world. But this is
0: Detroit, Mike.
1: I I agree. There should be a basic – it's funny. I've said there should be a format here in San Diego which is called Island Styly because reggae excuse me, reggae is huge still in San Diego and Southern California. So every band from, you know, Desmond Decker and sublime to the specials to, you know, Jack Johnson, everything's got that little Island reggae ish thing. There could be a radio station. It's like a beautiful music station that could be gathering massive amount of ratings to be played in every, uh, you know, shoe shop, uh, hairdressing place. Cause it's just the greatest background music on the planet. You don't necessarily have to have it blasting, And Motown is pretty much the same kind of a thing, but I think the difference is between reggae, reggae is, you know, pretty slow, it's about 98 beats a minute, but one of the things that I loved about Motown was it was always four on the floor for the most part, it was, you know, you know, sugar pie, honey bunches, and that stuff in the background after a while is going to be, it has to be foreground, so you're right, there should be a format that runs where they just basically play Motown's greatest hits, But all the hits, not just the, you know, 6,500 of them that we hear in a constant rotation on on those, you know, subscription service things.
0: As you mentioned, we just lost uh, the great Dick Kernan. Uh, He meant a lot to me. He meant a lot to you. He meant a lot to thousands of others who who we've helped along the way. I was trying to figure out how many jobs he's been directly responsible for me getting. I think I've worked at at 10 radio stations, and he might have been responsible for six or seven of those hires. Can you tell me a great right. Dick Kernan story?
1: Yeah, I was the opposite with him. He he and I, this was part of our the love for each other, is that I was the only guy that basically told him that his advice was not going to get me where I wanted to go. He was suggesting jobs in Bad Axe. Uh, my buddy Ron Steinman went to, to Sturgis, <laughs> Michigan. I went to visit Ronnie. I was working for a film company in Detroit. I was delivering film and eventually became a sound man. And, you know... St- did the whole Specs Howard thing. But when I met Ronnie at Specs, he was determined to become an on-air DJ and wanted to go to Sturgis, Michigan. Or something. So what ended up happening w- with me was my discussions with Dick was, why can't I just do something here in Detroit? And he goes, it just doesn't work that way. And he was right, but my goal was is not to do it the typical Specs way, which was moved to
0: Alpena or or,
1: Alpina or whatever it was. I didn't go, want to go to work for, Mom. I mean, Ron was making $104 a week in Sturgis. I don't remember what his rent was. I think it was like 30 bucks a month, something ridiculous, but I didn't want to do that. I stayed with him for probably a whole weekend out in Sturgis. And I just thought, I cannot, I can't imagine moving out here to the middle. I don't want to say it's the middle of nowhere. I'm sure it's a wonderful place to live, but I couldn't imagine to do that. I already knew how to run the gear. All I knew was I needed. So I started volunteering. In fact, even before I graduated, the one thing that Kernan always pissed off about was I never actually graduated until like two months after the whole class was, because I was already in DET by the summer of 77. I was volunteering down there was running the radio station. I was Turning the transmitter on at six o'clock in the morning or five o'clock in the morning or whatever time it was, I was running music of the black church. I was running.
0: So you just stopped going to specs then? You just stopped going to specs?
1: I, 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 I basically yes, and I was supposed to fulfill some final, you know, things that uh, you know Richard Barnes and whoever else was working there at the time, and so they eventually called me up. You know, there was no internet; they couldn't page me, they couldn't Facebook me. They basically called me up and said, so you got to get in here and finish out three things and then we can give you your diploma. And I was like, I'm already in. I'm a, I'm, a <laughs> I'm DET, where I want to be, DET, man. <laughs> but here's the thing. I wasn't getting paid at DET. Right. I was still working for, uh, I think it was Visual Concepts at the time. I was in it working there. I was in the shipping department, but I was making more money in the shipping department than Ronnie was uh, out in Sturgis. So the way I was looking at it was, I- I'm able to afford whatever I want to afford. I was going to see all the punk bands that came to Detroit. I was playing in a band at the time.
0: But did you have a connection at DET? Is that how you were able to get in without? uh, No,
1: I I had no connection. You just go in there and say, I'm working here now? I I mean. Yeah, I basically came up with, you know, basically, I don't want to say it was a tape and a resume, but it was basically a resume. And I went down to the Maccabees building because it was on the corner of uh, Warren, I believe. And then it was this, the the stick was on top of the building. Okay. And it used to be, uh, DET was originally owned by the UAW. And the UAW gave it to Wayne State University for the grand sum of $1 with the promise that it could never go commercial. So Wayne State took it over. Uh, They obviously called it WDET for a reason. And they had all these crazy shows on there. And I would listen to them as I would get more and more bored with listening to, got to remember at the time, W4CJOM, which is, you know, obviously was 89X for a long time, Riff, Wheels, and ABX. There was five rock stations on in Detroit at that time five of them and at one point they all started playing the bullshit like rihanna and dreams and all the crazy like you know to me i wanted to i wanted to hear the fucking mc5 right i wanted to hear the stooges i wanted to hear stuff from detroit that would you know fucking blow people's socks off but they were all they were all vying for those ballady bullshit rock songs that you know fucking shitty journey songs you know I go back to the same thing it's freaking detroit for fuck's sake i mean motown to techno to you know the amalgamation. I mean, when you think about it, bands like Leonard Skinner were bigger in Detroit than they probably were anywhere else in the country uh, because of the uh, the amount of people that came up from Kentucky, Tennessee, and stuff to work in the factories. They were looking for right. their, you know, it was the old Rebel Flag thing before the Rebel Flag became the r- racist symbol that it is today.
0: So going so, back, you did you, did you start? Let me. I want to back because sometimes we get we 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 get way ahead of ourselves. Uh, we're going to go so off I, on ten, I, yeah. Yeah,
1: this. Is my job. I'm, I'm, I'm not telling talking on the radio, so I don't but, have to be succinct.
0: <laughs> what? Radio is in motion. Did you start that at DET or was that when you were at Will? Yes.
1: Well, thanks for bringing up the word Genesis because uh, it all comes back to We both Genesis were the band, uh, yes. band that I was, you know, I was basically asking O'Leary why he was not playing Genesis when Peter Gabriel was the singer. Gabriel leaves, Phil Collins comes in, and next thing you know, they've got fucking hits. And at that point, he was like, wow, you do know what you're talking about. So one of the shows on DET was Judy Adams' program called Genesis. I would listen to that show cause she would play everything from Tom Waits to Frank Zappa to, you know, Ornette Coleman, just a you know, just a variety of fucking weirdness. So I was talking to Judy Adams. That's how I got to DET. So they said, come down train with Mark Otis. He's leaving. I'd go down there for like four or five weeks in a row and Mark Otis would train me on how to grab the programming from the box and rack it up and do the stuff. And, um, Got on the air and Calvin Usery, who was the uh, kind of like the head of the board ops. He was there most of the days doing all the other NPR type programmings, took me under his wing, taught me things. And then eventually Judy Adams said, can you fill in for Jerry Stormer? Because he had a program called Bandpass. Pass. I would fill in for him. I did an interview with XTC out at the uh, uh, Michigan Theater, Ann Arbor. They were opening for the police. I did a whole uh, interview with them and yeah. ran it on Jerry's show, featured the whole album, did the same thing with a police album and a bunch of other things. But the point was is that they were very open-minded, uh, Judy Adams uh, uh, especially. And she basically said, you know, we should give this guy a shot. So they put me on, on a Friday afternoon. I mean, I think back now and I go, they must have been fucking insane. They put me on, on, a, on a on a Friday afternoon between one and three before Judy's show started. It was normally some sort of an NPR program, but they said, let's put him on, play some music, see how much money he can raise. And uh, I, I came back with like 10 grand in the first – program which was a um, two-hour show from one to three and all of a sudden it was like we've got to get this guy on the air um it took six months or so maybe seven months but they finally got me on the air they called me up and they said we're gonna put you on between 1 a.m and 3 a.m on like wednesday night thursday morning or tuesday night whatever date it was i don't remember
0: what an opportunity that is got
1: my chops together became a much better presenter on the air than I was prior to that. because i they'd never really done a full-time radio show. So where did then you move me to Friday afternoons?
0: Yeah. And that's where you really started uh, becoming, getting a following. Did you realize the impact that you were making as an on-air personality?
1: There are, there were signs that I should have recognized. Um, when I was doing the super late night show, we would take phone calls like just before we shut the transmitter off, we would just take a bunch of phone calls and somebody out there taped one of these phone calls. And it's just the most weird Thing ever to hear Detroit people at three o'clock in the morning calling up, basically wanting me to play Motor City's "Born Burning" by the MC5, and then Mark Sovel, who's still a good buddy of mine, also a specs guy. And uh Mark Sovel, before he got into radio, called me up and basically was talking to me about like local bands that I should be playing, like Private Angst and stuff. And I should have known when when Mike Skill from the Romantics, he'd been booted out of the band at one point, but he wasn't getting along with the band, so they booted him and they brought Caz Candler in. And this guy calls. I later find out it's Mike skill and he's asking me about this band because he was blown away because it sounded unlike anything else he'd ever heard in his life. And he kind of let out a couple of secrets about him being a guitar player. And I finally, by the end of the conversation, I figured out it must be Mike skill because he was in the romantics and he's no longer. So the next week Mike skill comes down to the radio station with a stack of albums that he picked up when he was in Australia on tour, you know, just before he got booted out of the band, the combination of a guy like Mike skill, who had hits on top 40 radio coming in to bring in bands like flowers. And I don't remember what else he brought in, but he brought in all these crazy underground bands from Australia to play them on the air because he knew that that's what I was doing to think that he was listening in the first place is fucking mind blowing. And so at the end, end of the, uh, this phone call I'm like, bring him down. And my whole goal was to basically have that kind of rapport with musicians. And I've always had that since then, you know, that's how I found bands like blink 182 and jewel and those kind of things. And, Gave them the first airplay. Was just trying to be friendly to the musicians. That's when I should have figured out there was an impact happening. And it didn't really hit me until I'd left Detroit, moved to San Diego.
0: So obviously, Radios in Motion becomes a huge hit in Detroit. Uh, Talk to me about the transition, uh, about Wheels bringing you over to them to do the show there. When I started doing Radios in Motion, originally, by
1: the way, it was called Rest Aria. When I filled in on the on the pledge period, uh, Judy. Loved the residents and uh, I was a big residents fan, but not that big. I was more of an XTC fan for obvious reasons. And she goes, let's show, call the show rest aria, you know, which is the plan words from, you know, opera arias and right. not a rest area. It wasn't forceful enough for me. I mean, what do you want to call it? And I've just said, I want to call it radios in motion after the XTC song, because in that they talk about Milwaukee, I was born in Milwaukee. They talk about the, you know, the kids basically need this kind of radio. The lyrics are pretty much, you can, you can hear it in the lyrics, what the song's about, like the kids need their own music and they ended up using it. And, uh, you know, still to the state, people are buying the t-shirts for it, but it, it, you know, I changed it to radios in motion because I wanted something that was basically moving forward. So radios emotion motion ran originally from, you know, under that name from like early 1980 until like 82, I believe it was. And then I quit. I was very frustrated. Um, I figured by that point, somebody at Riff Wheels, one of those places would have basically said, you know, this show's great. Let's bring him on board. And it didn't happen. I didn't get the riff rock cafe show uh, when Carl Coffee left. I thought that would happen. I was being an egotistical son of a bitch. Basically, '84, I was at LBS, and then I went to Wheels, and then Radio's in Motion started on Wheels as a late night or a Sunday night program because Lee Arnold, who hired me, basically said, "Yeah, why don't you bring back his uh, his radio show that basically had you two as guests and Plasmatics and." Mutants and all the crazy bands they used to bring in back in those days. So that's when bands like Beastie Boys, Beastie Boys came by Wheels, uh, Beastie Boys came by LBS uh, back in the day uh, before anybody knew who the, who the fuck they were. Um, so Radios Emotion kind of jumped in and jumped out. It basically became my show on, you know, it was my brand, if you will, on Wheels, and then I left and went to DTX. So I was happy because I was making, it was my career at that point. It was no longer a hobby. It wasn't something I was just kind of showing up to do on weekends or late nights at DT. DET couldn't afford me. They couldn't afford to pay a lot of their volunteers for obvious reasons. And, and I was one of them, but I was the overnight guy at Wheels for, I don't know, eight, nine months or so. And then I went to um, DTX where Radios in Motion did not exist. It was, it came back to Wheels when I left DTX and moved to 91X in San Diego Podell now is running wheels, and he said, can you send us three hours or two hours a week? So I used to tape the show wow. in San Diego, put it into a FedEx uh, bucket, and ship it to them, and they would basically send the tapes back on Monday. I'd re-record the programs.
0: Doing this movie, I've I've gone back and I've been listening to a lot of on-air personalities from the 50s, 60s, all the way up to the 90s and beyond. But lately, uh, I've been listening a lot to uh, the, the, the electrifying mojo. Were you a— Card-carrying member of the Midnight Funk Association.
1: Uh, I was. It's it's funny you say that because it all came down to the same thing. Um, when when I first became aware of the Electrifying Mojo, it was because there was something happening in, in Detroit. He'd been doing things before I was, but he was really kind of pushing the boundaries when he was at, when he was at GPRA, as they used to call it. He was down on Jefferson. I was at uh, uh, DET at the time. And he, I couldn't tell you when he started GPR, but suddenly some of the bands that I was interviewing would go there either before me or after me and they would do interviews down there. And so I was like, well, I got to listen to this guy. So I started checking out his program and it was almost like, it reminded me of the cool shit radio back in the seventies, like the Phil Hendry type stuff where he'd take you on these journeys, like you would be transported into other places. And he was just kind of like this mythical crazy creature that I, you know, I never thought I'd meet him. I almost didn't want to meet him, and he became my confidant uh, at one point because my frustration at DET was growing and growing, and he obviously left uh, GPR at one point, and he went to uh, power. But, Ron, what happened was is that I just started, like, talking to him more because he'd get off the air after me. He'd get off there at 3, and I'd get off the air at 2. So I would go meet him at Lafayette Coney Island because it was close to where he worked. So by the time I got from LBS down there – or DET down there or wherever it was when we, we was just basically meet at Lafayette Coney Island. And and I got to meet him and hang out with him. And he is just one of the funniest fuckers on the planet. And he gave me, this is the summer of 83. I had not made up my mind if I was going to go back to DET because I was applying for the job at LBS. I had just gotten back from LA. I don't remember what my job was. I was probably running out of money very quickly, probably staying at my parents' place. And sure enough, we meet down at Lafayette Coney Island because you can get a good meal down there for not much money. And he says... Uh, and so you can't beat you the ambiance either. <laughs> no, you can't, especially when nobody knows what he looks like or what I look like. You know, he wasn't, he never, you know, no, nobody knew what he looked like. So he could just cruise into a place. He just looked like a normal black dude. And I look like the normal white dude hanging out with the black dude. The, the new wave haircut and the, and the jerry curls. That's pretty much what he had back in those days because that was the shit. Because that's what Prince had. <laughs> and he was he was the first guy i was playing prince and he was playing prince like right around the same time that's one of the reasons that it kind of became you know obviously he was on every single night i was only on a couple nights a week in the beginning but the insane part was he goes well, wh- what are you being offered and i said i'm being offered det for no money just to put Radio in motion back on the air like on a thursday night or whatever but i really want to go to lbs and he goes and what's the offer from lbs and i go there is no offer And he looks at me and he says, you can't kick anybody in the balls when you're on your knees. And I thought about that for a second. And I go, I was like, I was trying to process that. You can't kick anybody in the balls when you're on your knees. And I went, okay. And he (laughs) said, you need to stand up, take the job at DET, the one that's being offered, go back on DET, do what you do. And the guy at LBS is going to notice because he's going to hear about it from people. And then he's going to hire you. Lo and behold, four or five months later, this is what Andalisi will tell you because Andalisi was there in the building when I came in to say I'm leaving to go to LBS, is that basically they found out how good the show was because it was back on the radio and they were getting phone calls about it or the GM was.
0: So it played out just like he said it would.
1: Mojo basically predicted my future Because I was too arrogant to understand that, you know, these people should know who the fuck I am and fuck these people and (laughs) blah, 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 blah.
0: I I wouldn't say I'm envious, but I'm interested in this because I'm a huge fan of this band. I'm a huge fan of Eddie Vedder. You and Eddie Vedder have become friends uh, at 91X. How, How did that come to pass?
1: We actually kind of knew each other beforehand. Uh, He just wasn't Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam at at that point, but he used to hang out at all the shows. He was playing in a couple couple of different bands here in San Diego, uh, Bad Radio, and he was doing this thing called Indian Style for a while. And I'd see him. I didn't know that he was going to become Eddie Vedder Pearl Jam at the time, but he was also a runner, and he was the runner. He would basically go down, have to run out and get bags of ice or go grab the sandwiches or, you know, clean up a dressing room or do whatever because he was basically a, a guy who was making money besides his security jobs and besides his band stuff, he was making money basically running around backstage. So I kind of knew who he was because he was just there all the time, but I didn't know him. Uh, And he must've known who I was because years later when we launched the end in Seattle, he'd been living there at the time uh, for a while because Pearl Jam's album was coming out. In fact, that weekend, the first album 10 came out the weekend that we launched the radio station. So since then uh, through his brothers, um, Our relationship is just, it's freaking bizarre. I I don't know how else to describe it, but it's almost as if he's aware of what he is now uh, compared to what he was when I first met him. So he knows that he's got a a weird social responsibility to things. And we've shared stories on the air. Uh, One of the great things that happened was I'd asked him, Easter of 95, uh, if I could broadcast the Pearl Jam show that was coming to San Diego live on the radio. And I ran into Eddie's wife slash girlfriend at the time, Beth. And I said, she's like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, "Uh, might be taking over station here. But, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. But uh, can you ask Ed if we can broadcast the Pearl Jam show live? Because they were bringing their own radio station with them called Monkey Wrench Radio. They're going to bring it with them. So they're going to have this little transmitter uh, basically right outside the sports arena. 10-watt job, not enough wattage to penetrate anything. But basically just they wanted to broadcast the show to people who couldn't see it. And I said to Beth... I'll give him a hundred thousand watts for the night, and I didn't hear anything back. I didn't take the job in Denver, and I'm back in San Diego. And about four days before the show happens in in uh, San Diego, and this is right around the time that all the Ticketmaster bullshit was happening, so they basically bailed on the Ticketmaster uh, buildings and they're sort of playing the sports arena. And I get a call two days beforehand from his brother, basically saying, "Yes," <laughs> I said, "Yes, what?" And He goes, "You can broadcast the show live," <laughs> and I'm like okay uh because at that point you know what it's like you have to you know you have to get landlines put in you have to get all this stuff done and sometimes that takes a week to a month i went to my gm and i said um i got word back from eddie vetter that we can broadcast the pearl jam show live." he's like what and i'm like yeah i asked him when i was in denver and he goes uh, how do we get it done so i had to go down to the sports <laughs> search search for another radio station's lines that happened to be in there and got their engineer to talk to my engineer, and they basically said, yeah, sure. So we basically used another radio station's lines to get the signal out of the the thing, but it, it, two signals were going out, but one on 91X that was coming out of their board, and then theirs was going out of their board into their transmitter, which wow. was being broadcast on uh, whatever frequency they were bootlegging at the time. Record labels are kind of like roadblocks to me. Uh, Eddie and I have had that discussion before about, they, they think they control the band's career and um, this is kind of one of the things that happened. So when he gave me permission, he just didn't even call me because you know if he didn't have my number, he calls his brother's his brother calls me and says, y- y- yeah, you have permission Of course, I don't see him until after the show. The Ramones opened the show, so we broadcast the Ramones live on the radio and then we broadcast the Pearl Jam thing live on the radio. show starts. his, uh, his manager or whoever was comes in and goes, there are now three stations that are clipping into the signal of ours. So Eddie uh, gets on stage. I don't know this at the time. I find out afterwards because they go backstage to, I'll explain that part in a minute. So I don't know this at this point, but they come on stage and they're playing songs. And this is 95, right? October 95. Eddie on stage says, apparently there's a bunch of other radio stations that you know are now broadcasting this. And I just want to make sure you know who I gave permission to. And he says, fam." And he does our call letters in Spanish on the air. And Kevin Weather looks at me and goes, how the fuck did you get him to do that? And I go, that's Ed. That's fucking Ed Ed Ved basically doing what he fucking does. He doesn't give a shit (laughs) with the record label. So, of course, on Monday, I get screaming, yelling phone calls from record label people, not the manager, because the manager was there. The manager knew what was going on. And he basically said, this is what we're going to do. It was his hometown station. It was the one that played The Who and played all of his favorite bands, and that's what he fucking loved. So sure enough, Tuesday morning, this huge bag of blood manure shows up in my office, basically saying, fuck you. Ouch. Congratulations, but fuck you. <laughs> and I thought, that's fucking unbelievable because they had no idea.
0: That is so a great rock them, and roll DJ the, story right there. That's, right. that's a legend so, story.
1: So let me jump to the backstage thing. At that point, Pearl Jam is at this point, you know, Taking showers, the show's over, but Joey Ramone swings by the broadcast, me and Robin and Joey, and we're all having these conversations about things, and then Eddie comes out, and he grabs a mic, knowing full well that he's now on his station, these other stations, and it's me, DJ at 91X, Robin DJ at 91X, now being broadcast on other radio stations in town, because they're all still gleaming into the signal, and they suddenly start taking things off because it's it's two G two <laughs> DJs that don't work for them that are doing this and, and and eddie goes look it's getting too professional in here right now you guys gotta leave and uh you know he eddie was just eddie's more like um you know gil scott heron than he is like like a singer in a big rock band you right. know he's more of a revolutionary than people give him credit for
0: i want to switch gears a little bit here um march of 91 you're in you're you're at 91x but you're still yep. making points. You're still doing shit here in Detroit. You and Greg St. James had a fine John O'Leary night on 89X. It, 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 tell me about this.
1: If I remember correctly, because you, you know, we would do bizarre things on 89X all the time, but one of the things you would do is, Greg used to call me on a nightly basis because it was three hours different. so he'd get on there at 11 or something, and I'd be on there at 91X. He'd call my hotline, and we were discussing you know, legendary people, I believe. My goal was is that, if we couldn't find somebody, we knew somebody that would obviously, if they heard the broadcast, they'd be able to find him. So I think it came down to, nobody knew where, because O'Leary kind of disappeared for a while. He was doing radio production or something. This was pre-cell phones from what I remember, because I don't remember getting my first cell phone. Yeah, I think there was beepers, but you're right.
0: Like you talked about earlier, there was beepers, but no cell phones.
1: So for some reason, I think we just decided to go, all right, we need to find, you know, we need to find John O'Leary. and. The thing was is we figured if we just broadcast it, we're looking for John O'Leary and suddenly somebody who knew him called him at home wherever he was at the time <laughs> and got a hold of him and he got a hold of the station. He ended up getting hired, I think, shortly thereafter, uh, to work at the station. And um, you know, he's the guy that, you know, he's the reason that I got into radio because he didn't fucking lie to me. He basically told me the truth and
0: didn't sugarcoat nothing.
1: Yeah, he didn't. He's just, you know, he's just, as you know, he's a very funny guy. Uh, but at the same time, he just you know he talks about the massive amount of drug usage. Of He's just all a, that kind of shit. There's then, no filter
0: know. with John O'Leary, and I love that about him.
1: Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons that you know when I was able to call him and talk to him, I knew that he wasn't going to bullshit me, and then he couldn't bullshit me back. So when Genesis did take off, even though Peter Gabriel was not singing, <laughs> I mean, I, I can just imagine him like when Sledgehammer Hammer became a huge song, he must have been like fucking Haller.
0: <laughs> this Peter Gabriel
1: guy, you know, because no, no, nothing was big, but from Peter Gabriel until like five albums in, I think.
0: You know, a couple things uh, that I wanted to ask you about, uh, as it pertains to stuff that I asked you about when we sat down for the movie, is, um, you know, one of the things that uh, you you and I have a lot of 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 the similar passions, but we were both young men when we heard Byron McGregor with the twenty twenty news, <laughs> and when we were. Did it not? Did it not make Detroit seem like it was Gotham City? I mean, oh, yeah. it, it it was like don't go to Detroit; you you won't come out alive. I mean, it was just like so big, and 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 it captured my imagination.
1: What you believed that Byron McGregor, first of all, was a journalist and would not lie to you. He was not going to sens- sensationalize anything. But God damn it, you did. You were scared listening to some of the shit that was happening in Detroit at the time. And he was right that you know. Most of the CKLW listeners, when he was doing his thing, uh, was just, ba- by the way, 2020 news. How fucking funny is that now? 2020 news. You know, Ron, I, I think back to those times, and I remember my father being like, well, we can't go downtown for a while. People just couldn't go down there anymore because, you know, the riots were, you know, pretty much.
0: The, I, I remember that infamous of photo of that, that grandmother who was in her 80s or 90s driving down Woodward with a gun out the window.
1: And the, and the sad part is now that it's been many many years since it all happened. When you kind of realize what the source of it was and why it happened in the first place.
0: Another question I've been asking everyone appearing into my uh, documentary, uh, and, and we talk. There's a number of things that we've already talked about that would fit the answer here. But name something that you've uh, you never would have experienced had it not been for your job as an on-air personality or, or, or being in radio. Do you have uh, a I can't believe this is happening moment you can share?
1: Uh, there's a couple, one of them was getting asked by the cure to fly to London to do their pir- pir- pirate radio broadcast because they knew that they couldn't ask any English DJs because once they, the government tried to shut them down, uh, that the, whoever was on the air would be pretty much uh, persona non grata with the, with the English airwaves, whoever controls them. So they asked me to fly over with my buddy Louis Largent and I basically got to spend an evening with the cure. There's one picture of it because they let the media in. And then there's a little clip on um, MTV Europe or MTV England where it shows me doing the sound check before Robert Smith came on the, on the radio. But, you know, Robert and I had gotten along really well. So there's a lot of things that happened because I was doing radio but going to do radio in other parts of the world. Um, having – and I also worked for the BBC for a while. I was doing this thing called Beverly Hills Jock. I was the gossip columnist for – radio ones program with jackie brambles but they ended up hiring me to do this stuff and, and because of that um i did road trips with them i did like a series of concerts in england over the summertime it was just fucking amazing, amazing. shit this is all, this is all like the summer of 93 and it was just you know but none of this would have happened none of these weird things would have happened had it not been for my radio career my, my wife steph is um she and her friends used to listen in in, uh, Windsor. She was growing up in Windsor at the time, born in Royal Up, but growing up in Windsor. And um, she would tell me that they would get in their car, like after school and somebody would have a notepad and they would drive out to school kids out in Ann Arbor. And as they were driving out there, they'd write down the songs that I was playing and go out and buy a bunch of these things and then drive back. And so, you know, she knew who I was because of the radio thing. I didn't know, you know, she didn't know at the time she was going to end up marrying me, but at the same time, it's kind of like that same thing. It's like, you, you kind of know people because of they know you for what
0: right. you do. What are your and, thoughts about today's alternative music? What do you like listening to these days?
1: I am into, um, there's three bands, three bands I'm going to recommend. There's a band called Snarls from Columbus, Ohio, who to me, I would be playing the hell out of them if I was at a radio station now because they write really unbelievably cool, jangly pop songs. It's uh, three girls and a male drummer.
0: Snarls is the name of the band. I love Snarls. that name. I love yeah, that not, name. not The Snarls. And just just Snarls. Snarls.
1: There's a song called Marbles, which is really freaking great. Very Pixies slash Nirvana-esque. I love them. I like this band called Idols. They're from Bristol. They remind me of something that's never been done, but has been done a million times before. I-D-L-E-S. Just amazing. The band is over the top. Singer's out of control, and he's amazing. And uh, there's, been, there's a band from... Uh, um, Dublin called uh, Fontaines. They had to change the name in this country to Fontaines DC because there's already a Fontaine's in this country. And so this band from Dublin called Fontaines. In this country, you biden under Fontaine's DC is I don't know how else to describe it. It's like it's television meets Buzzcocks meets. It's just it reminds me that, you know, guitars are making a huge comeback. That's uh, good news. Got, it's been pe- too long. People gotta let it. People gotta let it happen. They gotta stop fighting these bands and they gotta play them because obviously they're just, you know, they're freaking amazing. Um that's some of the stuff that I'm, you know, I kind of like listen to on, uh, on repeat, if you will. And that comes down to, you know, the poets, as you're talking about with Vetter. To me, it was Frank Black from the Pixies and, and all these other bands. You know, Snarls is one. Obviously, Idols, the fucking lyrics of that. Holy fuck. Listen to the lyrics of some of these bands. And you're like fucking blown away now because they're still writing protest songs.
0: What is the uh, what's the future hold for Mike Holleran?
1: There's some things that I'm trying, uh, which hopefully will be uh, coming into fruition in the next four to five months. Uh, I've been working on a lot of things kind of behind the scenes because I think my frustration level is back to where it was before I got the job at DET. And I'm just having to navigate the weird waters of these massive companies. As I said, you know, these companies like uh, Intercom that have basically taken over a bunch of radio stations and they fired everybody. So you've got one jock on five you know different stations of theirs and it's just pablum and it just fucking annoys the piss out of me it's the reason that i called john o'leary in the first place i was asking him why he wasn't doing anything it goes back to the same thing i'm back to that same thing now where i'm frustrated because there's not an accurate representation
0: mike i can't thank you enough for joining me today all the best to you and yours my friend thanks for taking some time with us today
1: it has been my pleasure young ron stay young you I old man.
0: appreciate that Mike Halloran what a great what a talented cat thanks again Mike and thank you for tuning in for Radio Days the podcast and of course keep an eye out for Radio Days the movie coming later this year today's show is brought to you by Ron Robinson Studios if you need professional marketing videos drone video head over to RonRobinsonStudios.com tune in next week you know they always say how it's going to be to follow Mike Halloran next week we got a big show the legendary Dick Purton. Uh, Holy yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, you got Dick, Dick Burton. Burton? I know it's hard to believe.
1: I, you know, he was one of the guys that when I got into radio, I kept thinking to myself, Dick Burton. I would, I would go in there and say, this song is very Dick pertinent? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's how I'm going to end it. Next week, oh. the legendary Dick Burton. Thanks again, Mike. We'll talk to you later. And thank you for tuning in to Radio Days, the podcast. Until next time.